An Instagram post gets an unexpected boost. A TikTok catches in the algorithm. Sometimes that's all it takes to launch someone into internet fame. But then what? This Blew Up is a new podcast documentary that reveals how social media stardom is made. It's a different kind of fame that's not always as glamorous as it looks. From Spotify and the Ringer Podcast Network, I'm Alyssa Bereznak. You can listen to This Blew Up on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, everybody. Uh, Welcome back. Uh, This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. So much stuff uh, going on in the world right now. The thing that has been, uh, you know, right in the forefront has been this tragedy uh, of the people in the submersible that went down to the Titanic. And we've all been, you know, it's a horrible pun, but, you know, holding our breath, you know, trying to, you know, seeing what's going on. And, you know, we find out that they all, it seems like they all kind of perished um, pretty quickly, I guess, maybe as it was descending, it's really just a sad situation. There's a lot of like people chatting about it and talking about it. Some of the jokes out there I found to be really distasteful. Look, and I'm all for gallows humor, but you know, we didn't know what was going on with the people. There's a 19 year old kid, you know, some of that I found in bad taste, but you know, as someone who engages in a lot of gallows humor, I get where it's coming from, but other than the jokes, there's also been, and this is what has surprised me, there's been a lot of, uh, like, attacks of the people that have gone down, which I don't get at all. I've always been, maybe it's me, I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. I've always, uh, you know, been an admirer of adventurous type of people and that type of thing. And I don't know if we're in a cultural class war these days. Who knows? But anyhow, someone who's a really good friend of mine who someone whose writing I've admired for years and years and he's such a great guy I had no idea he did one of these adventures and he's been all over the news this past week one of the best guys in the world by the way uh just I consider him a comedy genius and I don't think anybody will fight me on that but um he was nice enough to come in the pod and to talk about this a little bit put in a little bit of different perspective for everybody out there rather than kind of the soundbite kind of noise you kind of get on the news. Um, so he's a writer for The Simpsons, a producer of The Simpsons. He's one of, as I said, he's, he's got a podcast, a travel podcast called What Am I Doing Here? Which is kind of interesting. There's an intersection with that. But Mike Grease, welcome to Black in the Air, my friend. It's so good to have you here. What a pleasure. What a joy. Nice to see you again. It's so good to see you too. Um, I'll give people some background. Mike was, Mike, and, Mike Reese and Al Jean, you know, were not technically a comedy team anymore, I guess, but they were for years and years, you know, and uh, I always admired those guys. I had seen their names all over the place, you know, but I got a chance. My first uh, pilot that I got to write, like that I got paid for to write was with these guys. We developed a show that was a golf show. I don't know if you remember that, Mike. This yes, is back, I remember uh, it very well. Yeah, it was kind of, it was before Tiger Woods. He was about to take off and we were writing a show 
It's kind of like the life of Brian, if you would. It's like the guy who grew up next to Tiger Woods. You right. Know? His name is like, Eagle Barnes. Yeah. That was it. He was the second best black golfer in America. Right, right, right. Uh, I don't remember much about the show, but I remember working with you guys. It was a dream. It was so much fun. It was and, fun. Uh, I, I wanted to say, we are right. Yeah. We had the idea. I think that yeah. we had the talent. And they said, we're going to put you with Larry Wilmore, who we've never <laughs> heard of. Yeah. He's coming in to help you. Yeah, yeah. And we go, who is this guy? Who's and you this start guy? writing. And we go, mm-hmm. oh, he's much better than us. Oh, Here's that's hilarious. Me. It was so good. And I go, oh, we got to up our game to work with this guy. Oh, you're very kind. And then you came to work with me on the PJs, which oh, uh, was the animated show. And I got to work with you guys in that capacity. And that's where I got to see Mike Reese as the machine. This is what we used to call you, Mike. You and Mike Price, by the way, the two Mikes, and you know Mike really well, too. You guys can pitch jokes with anything going on and they're all usable and they're all great jokes. And it's like, when we're in need, it's like, Oh, please save us, Mike. One of the mics, please save us with a, with a good joke. The only talent I had, cause I didn't know that nobody started telling me yeah. I had this reputation until my skills were all gone. <laughs> right. And they would say, you know how good you used to be. That's hilarious. But the one thing I knew I was good at a show was, I would pitch the last joke of the day, especially on PJs. It'd be two in the morning and you go, we just need this last joke. That's right. And I pitch the joke. Everyone, we get out of there. We come in the next day. This is not good. (laughs) Well, the two, the two AM pitches, you never know what you're going to get. You never know what you're going to get. I used to work for Gary Shandling show. Same thing. I'm the closer. I'm the guy who gets you home at night. Get his home. Yeah. Yeah. You, well, your reputation was well deserved, you know, but there's this whole other side of you that we're getting to know now. You are kind of, a, I guess, adventurer might be the term. I know you and your wife, Denise, have traveled around the world a lot in the past. I remember seeing your uh, you talking about that and that type of thing. You guys have always been kind of traveler adventurers, you and your wife. Right? Little, you know, I used to work all the time. And yeah. it's funny because it's a whole phase of my life that came in after I stopped working with you. So you don't really know me exactly this way because I didn't know me this way, which is around age 38. So 25 years ago, Mm -hmm. I decided I'm going to stop working. I've had enough of this. I remember you were like working one day a week or you took, you took like a year off or something first, right? Or something like that. No, I don't just look that way. Development. So no, I was just, I just had enough and I yeah. saved my money and I was on my starter wife and I didn't have <laughs> no kids. So I go, I think I can stop, you know, as long as we don't eat or live indoors, I think we can make a go of it. And that's when Denise said, I want to travel. And we started traveling and we did mm-hmm. all the usual things. And then it got weirder and weirder. And we wound up, yeah, I think the big turning point, we took a trip to Iran. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, you know, they're going to kill me. This is the first of many trips where I thought I would die. Wow. And I loved it. And I loved Iran so much. And the people were so nice. Mm-hmm. I, go, I guess anything's fair game. And so since then, we've been to 134 countries and, mm-hmm. wow. and the both poles. And I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. Wow. It got to the point where people were saying, oh, when they would hear about some horrible idea for a vacation, mm-hmm. they'd send it to us. And 
And that's how we wound up going to the Titanic. Now, were you climbed Mount Kilimanjaro? I didn't even know that. Now, when was that the first real kind of dangerous adventure that you did? Like one might consider there's a big risk to my life type of thing? No, I, I mean, I mean, we went to places, as I say, going to Iran, people thought mm-hmm. we were crazy. Going to Iraq, kind of de- during wartime, mm-hmm. that's dangerous. Uh, you know, and then we, we go to countries, well, we went to North Korea. Mm-hmm. Wow. North Korea, North Korea was a weird one in that they kidnap visiting show yeah. business people. They have a real history of if someone, a filmmaker, comes to North Korea, they'll kidnap him really? and keep him there making movies for years and years and years. Really? And, yeah. And so I applied and, oh, our, our travel agent said, don't tell them you work in entertainment. And they said, don't tell them you're Jewish. Every, everybody hates <laughs> Jews. You know, I, I'm sure they've never seen even the North Koreans. Like you can find anti-Semitism pretty much everywhere. It is a, it is one mm-hmm. of our great products, and uh, and so they said, say you're a Catholic publicist. Oh my goodness! And, and I go, all right, I'm a Catholic publicist, and I fill out all the paperwork, and they write back and say, we know who you are, and we checked no out way. your credits but you can still come as long as you don't write about it. Of course, I took the trip. I came home. I wrote about it instantly. Wow. But I realized after the trip, hey, they didn't kidnap me. They, they saw my work. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't at the Dennis Rodman level. You weren't at that level. No, right? no, they didn't. Mm-hmm. They go, all right, we saw Teen Angel. We don't need this guy. That's right. Teen Angel. I remember that. Yeah, that was another one. So let's go. Let's. Let's uh, talk about the whole Titanic thing. And before we talk about it, I just want to acknowledge, uh, um, you know, I'm real sorry. I know you're uh, friendly or friends with uh, the uh, CEO of it. Uh, what was his name? What? Stockton Rush. He, Stockton he, Rush, right. Stockton Rush. He was a friend. And we knew the other guy, the, the French guy, PH, who also died. I knew two yeah. of those five people with... Stockton was a real friend. I really admired him, uh-huh. but we'll we'll get to him in a, in a bit. Well, let's start with the with the tragedy first. What was your reaction when you first heard that they had lost contact? Were you uh, for someone that had been in it? Were you re- really really fearful at first, or did you think, well, we'll we'll see what's going to happen? Yeah, I'll tell you exactly. It was it was Sunday Sunday yeah. afternoon. And we see the news story come on. They just say a sub going to the Titanic mm-hmm. was lost. And I go, gee, we took a sub to the Titanic. And then we mm-hmm. find out, oh, it's our very sub. It's the one I was on. And they said they've lost contact with it. Now, I, I'm going to jump ahead and say I've spent the past week going on news shows, sure. talking about it. And all the way through, I'm going, our prayers are with them. And if yes. anyone can handle this, it's stopped right. and rush. And, the second the news broke, I just said to my wife, well, they're dead. Oh. And my wife said, I'll bet it imploded. It was just, wow. like, if you've done it, if, if you've been there and seen the subs, you just go, that it is the most unforgiving environment in the world. Mm-hmm. Any tiny thing will turn into utter catastrophe. So mm-hmm. 
we we knew they were goners. And in fact, I'd be on these new shows with like naval engineers and mm-hmm. old old uh, sailing ca- submarine captains, and I could tell they knew they were dead too. Yeah. Any anyone with any knowledge knew, and so it's not only just everybody's hopes and prayers going out, but there were about two days where they said we heard knocking and. I don't know. It was it was a little sad. And then I see James Cameron on TV and he knew too, you know, the guy knows yeah. something. He, he was very he, explicit about it. Yeah. He figured out exactly what it was and we all kept quiet and I don't know if that's right. Yeah. What do you think of that? Do you think uh, the news media has gotten some uh, criticism for their coverage from a lot of different standpoints? Do you think they had a better sense than they let on as to what happened? Did you get that sense? Or do you think they're just, I don't know, throwing darts at the dartboard, just trying to figure it out? Well, I get that. It's all in hindsight now. I get the feeling they knew right away, hey, this is a a good story. Because it could have just been a one-day story. Hey, missing sub, you know? Boats go missing. But instead... I, I saw it over the course of about four or five hours. I first started getting calls from Britain at like two in the morning. Those are the first interviews I did, which is mm-hmm. I went from a total schmo nobody cared about. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly I'm getting 10 calls from Great Britain between one and four in the morning. Mm-hmm. And then I would watch the news show and say, oh, this is the top story in Britain. And then within a day, it's the top story every single day on American media. So mm-hmm. I think every, I don't know why Britain jumped on it first, but I just go, Oh, they see this as not just a one shot. They see, Oh, this can tease out for a long time. And in fact, one last thing, which was, yeah. um, I never thought they'd find any wreckage. My mm-hmm. belief was this would just, this would never have closure. I knew Ugh. they were gone. It's but like I, some of those airplane missing things that CNN, I remember there was this one airline thing that was missing and CNN covered that as breaking news for like a year as breaking news. Right. So that I'm glad, I'm glad they, they found debris. So yeah. now they know. And now it was kind of the critique about apparently the Navy picked up a sound that could be interpreted as an implosion or explosion, but they didn't, you know, I'm guessing that the reason why, they didn't go real public with it. Not that that's their job to go real public with that, you know, but I think they informed the proper people was that it was inconclusive at that point, but the debris makes it more conclusive. It seems like, but even they were criticized for, for just hearing something, you know, which is kind of strange. Yeah. Very strange. Strange to see. It was, but you know, you, you've been in the middle of the media and I'm sure yeah. you've been a focus of attention. I have not. I love I'll tell you the one time I was ever, you know, slightly popular was when they announced Conan O'Brien was replacing David Letterman Mm -hmm. and no one had ever heard of Conan O'Brien. And I knew him. I was his boss at the Simpsons. Mm -hmm. So that for like two or three days, I'm super famous as the man who knew Conan O'Brien. So that, that was my, my only other brush with this kind of celebrity. But yeah, that, you know, I was just inundated, inundated. Bad Have word. people been taking shots at you? Have you? Uh... No. Well, I, I, you know, I didn't go looking for it. And then mm-hmm. uh, 
every once in a while, yeah, I, I would just look over on yeah. a video. I would, you know, I would go on YouTube and then I would see the comments and they go, oh, mm-hmm. rich guy. But they took me to test for something. I go, oh, they're right. Because I keep telling this story that be- uh, before I got on the sub, my wife had been uh, tested positive for COVID and I kissed her goodbye and got on the sub knowing I might never see her again. And I thought, oh, what a beautiful story. And they're all going, you kissed your wife with COVID? <laughs> right. And then you got on a submarine? Right, right. Oh, good thinking, yes. guys. So she didn't actually go on the sub with you. You, you went by yourself, right? That's it. I mean, she stayed behind thing. to inherit all the Reese fortune. <laughs> <laughs> there is a theory, you know, because I talk about these trips and I enjoy these trips. I don't want to go on these fucking trips. I want mm-hmm. to sit home and watch horror movies. And she keeps dragging me into them in real life. Uh-huh. And she loves to travel. And I love my wife. And if uh-huh. we're going to do something, right. it has to be at the North Pole or you know Libya or something like that. Yeah. So I go along very reluctantly on every one of these trips. So let's talk about how did you first get in... Uh, involved with the Titan. How did you find out about this particular uh, scenario, the going down to yeah. the Titanic? Was it was it uh, Denise who, who found out about it, or it was a friend of ours? You know, the, mm-hmm. they're building these subs out of basically a strip mall in a gar- in a garage at a strip mall in Everett, Washington, and we have really? a friend who lives in Everett, and he just uh-huh. said. He wrote to us and uh, told us about it. He said, this sounds like something you two would do. Hold on a second. Your friend sees subs being made out of a strip mall (laughs) and says, hey, maybe Mike should go in this thing. That sounds like how good of a friend is this exactly? This is what our friends do. They discover things and they go. I would never do that in a million years. Yeah, Mike's That's crazy enough Mike to and do. Denise, and so we jumped at it. The uh, we heard about. Yeah, well, in fact, Denise shows me the website. Here's this company. They weren't going to the Titanic yet. They were going on this dive off of New York. Oh, okay. And she, I mean, she just says, "Hey, what do you think of this? This uh, diving in this homemade submarine with this guy you never heard of?" And I said. Well, that sounds like a fun way to die. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, years ago, that my, that's my first reaction. When they go, didn't people know, didn't you? Yes, every single person who ever got involved with this company knew one side effect of traveling with them could be death. Now, did you think that because of the nature of the trip, or did you have any concerns about the equipment itself? Because the fact that you mentioned strip mall, to me... There's yeah. no way I'm getting on that thing. There's just, just no way. I mean, even if it comes directly through NASA, I'm pausing a bit, but at least, you know, yeah. I'm thinking, well. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are jumping all over this guy. It's not like. I mean, it's built right next to Jimmy John's. I mean, you have to, like, <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking, well, I don't know. It's a beautiful mall. I, I'll yeah. give you that. Oh, it's well, there really, you go. There you go. There, it's, and it's funny because it, the, the building room shares it a wall with this big bar. So anyway, so uh, we heard about, I don't know, you know, you kind of feel like if they're doing it, how Mm -hmm. dangerous could it be? It's like when you get a ride on a, if you ride a roller coaster in a real 
crappy amusement park. You go, well, if it was going to kill people, they wouldn't let people on. Do you think it's human nature that many times will assume that people know what they're doing if, you know, for these dangerous situations, like maybe we, I don't know if we assign too much to people's expertise or once we see somebody's done it, like there are some things I just won't do. Like I'm just not going to bungee dump, bungee jump in a Canyon, you know, right. that I, even if the, per, you know, 20 people could go in front of me and it works. I, I'm just afraid of heights and that I just can't do that. You know, I feel like I'm going to be the one where they go, Oh fuck. As soon as I jump off. <laughs> oh no, no, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> it's too late. Like as soon as I jump off, that's going to be the thing. But I'm just, I have that kind of terror in me. On the other hand, I think I would go up into space because it's something I've always wanted to do, but I would be mindful of, you know, how I would actually do it, I guess. I don't know if that makes any sense. So I understand the compulsion to do it, but I do find it fascinating how quickly we might assign expertise or or we feel like, well, this this is probably okay. And we kind of stop right there, you know? Yeah. You kind of trust people. I mean, there's a big yeah. thing we have. Trust is assigned very quickly is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I'll even go deeper. And it's just, it's, it's true in our case. And it's true in the case of almost everyone I know mm-hmm. who's like gone on these sub rides, which is we have no kids, mm. we have nice lives. We're kind of, we're getting old. We've mm-hmm. seen a lot of things that we factored death into a trip like this. I go, all really? right, this would be a fine way to go. You know, did you guys have conversations about that? No, no. I think we're just of like mind on that. Mm-hmm. So the, but the first trips that you took, could you tell me about those? You said those were in New, off of New York Harbor, off New York. We, off New York was, he had built us a, a different sub. His, mm-hmm. It was sort of the the test model. If this will work, then I'm going to go bigger and deeper. How long ago was that? This I'm going to say three, four years ago. Oh, very recent. Not yeah, that long ago. Yeah, very recent. He okay. had built this sub, and he wanted to explore Hudson Canyon. Now, Hudson Canyon is a canyon the size of the Grand Canyon mm-hmm. underneath the Hudson River. Mm-hmm. So we sailed, and you know, a lot of people don't get this. You know, you don't just jump off a pier into the submarine and go down. You you put the sub on a working class boat, like a tugboat or something, and you sail out for days to where you're going to launch the submarine. So in this case, yeah, we got on a, a what's called a pilot boat in Staten Island. Mm-hmm. We sailed for two days to Hudson Canyon, mm-hmm. and uh, and then we got in the sub. And went down. We went down a thousand feet and we saw it and it was beautiful and it was like a six hour ride. And he comes mm-hmm. back and this is Stockton Rush. He had, he was the pilot, the man. So you took the trip with him. He's in there. Right. He doesn't mm-hmm. always pilot. And that mm-hmm. was, you know, I've made four dives with this company. That's the only time I saw him pilot. Mm-hmm. But we went down a thousand feet, loved it. It's an otherworldly experience. Mm-hmm. And we come back and it's when we're getting off the sub because, you know, we're the first people in history to do that. It was like, what is, I didn't know that. So I'm the Neil Armstrong of Hudson Canyon. You know? <laughs> and so like you said, I would have been happy if 500 people had done it first, but we mm-hmm. were the first. 
And then uh, we did two other dives. And one of them is a pretty good story because it illustrates both sides of the coin, which was there's a U-boat. There's a sunken U-boat wow. off the shores of New York. Mm-hmm. And we took a submarine down to see the U-boat. This is the same trip. And we get down there for half a second and the pilot just looks at the controls and said, we got to go back. And I don't know what it was, but at the first sign of danger, they just go back. And I think anyone else, if they were hot dogs, if they were just in it for the money, they would have stayed for 10 seconds just to let us look at the U-boat. We were right there and we didn't get to see it. We just got there and went right back up. Do you know what the cause was of happening? No, I don't. I know that, you know, they talk about they lost communications with the submarine that kept coming up. All four trips I took with them, they lose communication. And, you know, it sounds bad, but, you know, if you're talking on your phone and going to a tunnel, you lose communication. Mm-hmm. It's, I think it's just built into the nature of phones and water and that kind of thing. So for the, for the Titanic adventure, did, Stockton contact you about it directly and say, "Hey, we're doing this Titanic thing now. Do you would you like to go?" Did, yeah, pretty much. Like we were in touch the whole time. I mean, we knew mm-hmm. we knew when he we were doing that that he was trying to build his Titanic sub. Okay, and you know we were down a thousand feet, and this Titanic that's thirteen thousand feet. Wow. That's whole different ball game. So it's a whole different sub for that. You were in a different sub doing the other one, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean the one the one in New York was super cool. I mean, all his subs look like something from Star Wars. They look like Tie Fighters or mm-hmm. X-wing fighters. But the one we did in New York, one entire wall of the submarine was a big lucite dome. The entire mm-hmm. wall was a viewing area. The Titanic one. It was the, a, ho- a porthole the size of a washing machine. That's mm-hmm. all you had. And he didn't even want to do that. He just wanted to just have a bunch of cameras on the outside. The camera. mm-hmm. But he just said, people are going to want a porthole. And so that, you know, that was his concession. But so that was it. A few years later, he's got the sub ready. He's tested it. There were a lot of setbacks. Uh, you know, there was COVID was a big problem, of course, but mm-hmm. they had a dive where they got, you know, a test dive where they got struck by lightning. There was a test dive where they got stuck in the sub for 26 hours. Whoa. Yeah, things, it was funny. He had, you know, just to show you his safety thing, he, uh, when we were on the boat taking us out to the Titanic, mm-hmm. He decided to show us a little PowerPoint of everything they'd gone through to show us, the, you know, let us know. Here's the problems we had. Mm-hmm. They couldn't even get the PowerPoint working. No, no, yeah. no. Here are some of the issues we've had. Sorry, this is another issue. We can't You're get this right. working. As long as this Titanic submarine isn't more complicated than PowerPoint, we're fine. So was there any type of training any like how much before you went down did they explain maybe what your role is or or any type of uh if you're involved in any type of rescue situation did uh, what sort of things that they cover ahead of time in in those areas there was nothing really because in a bad situation there'd be nothing to do um 
Uh, the other thing about that is there's five people on a sub. They can't. That's all they can fit is five. You have your pilot. You have a science officer because they were always doing science. There was always a legitimate educational purpose to this thing. So it was a pilot, a science officer who was also a pilot, and three passengers. So mm-hmm. you know, forty percent of the passengers are pilots. So. How much extra training do you need? Mm-hmm. So I'll tell you, when we took the, the Titanic dive, though, we uh, just to jump to the middle of the story. We get down to the bottom and we don't know where we are. We know we're 500 yards away from the Titanic, but you can only see like 30 feet in front of you. Mm-hmm. So we know that the Titanic, the biggest thing in the world, is down there somewhere, but we don't know where. And so the, the pilots are just yelling out orders. Okay, you, go on the laptop, do this. You, check the maps. The science officer is radioing the, the, the surface. And he goes, Mike, I go, this is my vacation. Mm-hmm. It was a real dick. Everyone <laughs> staffed together for, as a crew. And I go, I can't really help. I'm ballast here. Uh- so God, that's so terrible. Uh, <laughs> now, did was your wife? Did she initially want to go on this, and she got sick? Is that what happened? That was it. We we because okay. uh, it sounds like a bait and switch a little bit. You know, hey, yeah. I want to go on the Titanic. You know, what? you go. It <laughs> yeah. all. You know, there are. I do have friends who suspect her, but uh, yeah, we we get on our boat, our tugboat. It was a, it was a. It was my favorite part of the trip was to be on this real manly man ship that lays mm-hmm. transatlantic cables. How long was the trip to the site from? It was about three days. Oh, three wow. Days. So three days you're on there. And- three days on there hanging out. I go mm-hmm. to see things every day. Uh, I love the food. It was just man food. It was just pork chops and meatloaf. And <laughs> that's man food. Pork chops. That's and meatloaf. man food. I okay. wash dishes. Nobody asked me, but right. I had nothing to do. So, and then we finally get over the Titanic, and this is our moment. And of course, they, that was it. They give us COVID tests right before we get on, and she tested positive. Now we've been. It's two years into COVID. That's crazy. We've been to 34 countries. When people thought you couldn't travel at all, we've been to 34 countries. She had no problem. Somehow on this boat, she contracts COVID. So they tell her, Denise, you can't get on the sub. Mike, you can still go. And I said, I don't want to go. And uh, But, you know, I paid for it, so I might as well do it. So I took the, I took the dive. And left her behind. And as I say, I hugged her goodbye thinking, well, I may never see her again. You talked about the uh, forms that you have to fill out. Um, How long were these forms? Were they, uh, and you said death is mentioned on the form several times. How explicit are they with warning you about the dangers? They warn you. I mean, it was almost ingenious that someone thought of a hundred ways you could die on the trip and they were all laid out. I don't know what it, it might've been a five page, 10 page waiver, but the, just to see death mentioned three times on the, on page one. Mm-hmm. And that was it. They say you could be asphyxiated. You could, and 
a lot of the danger had nothing to do with the sub. It was being on this working ship. It was not registered to be a passenger cruise ship. You know, you could be hit in the face with the door. You could step on a live table. You could have a kid, you know, when they launched the sub off the deck of the, of the boat, and you could get caught in a chain. Stuff like that happened or came close to happening. Uh, you know, people got hurt on the boat. So a lot could go wrong and they didn't, mm-hmm. they didn't hide any of you, any of that from you. So when you went down to the Titanic, how, how long does it take to get down there? Like two, two hours or something like that? Two and a half hours. You're dropping two and a half miles. Wow. You're just a stone. I mean, there's no, there's no navigation to it. They just push a heavy thing in the water and it sinks till it hits bottom. And wow. even though I, I was tense, even though I was excited, I fell asleep on the way down. Uh-huh. I was laying there, I fell asleep. I woke up when we touched bottom, and I, I, I thought I was home in bed. And then, oh, wait, this is my home. I'm in the tube under two miles of water. So what was it like actually viewing the Titanic? What was that like? Well, you know, uh, and this is the candid story, which was, so you have three hours down there. Once you hit bottom, mm-hmm. you have three hours to explore, and then it's going to take you another two and a half hours to get back up. And the only limitation is has nothing to do with oxygen or food. It's just you have to get back up during daylight so the ship can find you and bring you aboard. Mm-hmm. So you leave early in the morning or that type yeah, of thing? Yeah, you left very okay. early. And, you know, mind you, probably 70% of their planned launches just get aborted before they even go. Because if the seas are bad, if the weather's mm-hmm. bad, they just don't go. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and in fact, there was a woman on the boat with us who finally got to make a dive who'd been trying to do it for 14 years. And uh, wow. yeah. But so you have, that's the point. You have three hours at the bottom. We spent two and a half hours just trying to find the Titanic. And finally, really, with 20 minutes to go, they, they said, oh, it just popped into view. You couldn't wow. see it. And then suddenly, bang, there it is. And you know, we're like, it pops into view because you're 30 feet away from it. And so there's no real navigational instruments to know how close you are to it or to judge any kind of distance or... Proximity. Now, it's I'll name drop. I was talking to David Copperfield, who is a big yeah. fan of yours, by the I way. I love David. Yeah. I, I spent some time with him in Vegas last year. Yeah. He's great. He was in my pioneer. He asked the same question. Why don't you put a like a beacon on the thing so people know where it is? And I yeah. don't know why that's not there. So there wait, wait. A beacon on the Titanic? Is that what you're saying? On the Titanic, you know, a sonar beacon or something. Oh, yeah. So old. you can find it. Yeah. And uh but I don't know. So we just, we got there and, you know, we only had a few minutes. And so we just went and got the Instagram moments. We saw the, I saw the anchor, mm-hmm. the word Titanic. I saw a porthole. I saw the bow. And then we got the hell out of there. Was there any sense that, I mean, cause part of it seemed like it's a bit surreal, you know, even though you're looking through a porthole, as you said, which is more realistic than looking on a monitor. But, 
you know, because it's been mythologized and in the movie, but did you get the sense that, uh oh, you know what, Mike, people died on this thing. You know, this is, this is a grave too. Did that ever go through your mind as you're watching that? Is, is there a somber sense as well as a wonder sense at the same time? You know, I got to say, no, I'm a bad guy. We actually, we did, and I think every voyage, mm-hmm. put the sub out there, they would have a memorial ceremony. Okay, before you went down. We uh-huh. laid a wreath and all oh, that. Oh, wow. So there was an acknowledgement of that. Oh, at absolutely. Least. Yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Not, again, this is, it's worth telling, especially kind of the trolls and the, the people who are sniping at it. You know, it's not tourism. It's not tacky. These are people, these are, you know, scientists and people Mm -hmm. who think like scientists and explorers, people, it's not people notching up. Here's a thing I did that I can put Mm -hmm. on Twitter. It's, it's people who want to see things and go places and see Mm -hmm. things with their own eyes. That in fact is why I, I didn't love my particular Titanic experience because it wound up just being a quick series of photos and backup. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then I get off the boat and there's a documentary crew there mm-hmm. and I'm climbing out of the sub and I know what the documentary crew wants. So, oh, wow. Did that change my life? And, you know, it was something to do for a day. The next day they had an, another launch and those people landed right, right next to the Titanic. They had three full hours to tour mm-hmm. it front to back and side to side. And those people came back really deeply moved. They came back crying and they got the full experience, but you get what you get. So it probably all of the the ramifications probably hit them because they were down there for so long, I guess. Yeah. What can you tell us about uh, Stockton Rush that maybe, maybe the media might be getting wrong or, did you get to know him more after you did this or did you guys kept in touch or we, we were in touch and, you know, we would have followed him on whatever he did. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if I said it, that, you know, Denise missed his trip and we were going to go this year. We would, we would, Oh, wow. Do it again. I had no problem following this guy anywhere. I, I saw him, I saw how he operates. He who's the most detail-oriented, meticulous guy in the world. Every Mm -hmm. day, we had to go to briefings, and they went for hours, and he would work his way down a checklist. And and so it was so pointless, but he loved checklists. And he actually hands me this book as I'm leaving a meeting. This is my favorite book. It's... (laughs) It's the history of checklists. Wow. It's like, I hope you read it. It's like, I'm not going to read that. But mm-hmm. he, you know, he cared about details. And then, but that, that goes towards the safety of the whole thing. And the idea, you know, people fo- right. fo- focus on the idea. Oh, things kept going wrong on the ship. When I would say the thing to focus on is at the first sign of trouble, he stopped. You know, he would never mm-hmm. keep going. He'd never shrug off a problem so i thought that was great about him but then he was just a remarkable character he really Mm -hmm. was captain kirk he was handsome he was fearless we used to smoke cigars together on the back deck at night he was Mm -hmm. really funny he was an engineer and a rocket scientist and an airplane pilot and an inventor he was 
He was like every dream a kid has at one time. Why do you think people have been so negative about this type of um, endeavor, I guess you could say, as a, I won't use the word adventure, I'll say endeavor, because it, it is something more involved than adventure. Yeah. Uh, people seem to be, I don't have the right adjective for it, but it is, it is interesting that people are, have a real animus towards this type of thing, which I, I just don't know where that's coming from. Do you think it's a class thing that is animating it? And it's partly a reflection of our times. Maybe there seems to be more of a non relating to this type of thing. I think when we were kids, you know, these type of people were our heroes when we were kids, the adventurer, the person that, that did that type of thing. You mentioned Neil Armstrong. He's still a personal hero of mine, you know? Um, So Maybe it's a generational thing. I don't know, but it feels like a class thing to me where, cause the word billionaire is talked about a lot, you know, yeah. and, you know, the, the, the saddest story is the guy who brought his son with them and people talked about the son didn't want to go and this type of thing was trying to please his dad. Those types of stories, they're very sad. Yes, they are. But I, I feel like they don't really tell the whole story. No, I'm, you know, I can't blame people for not being there and understanding it. And I'm mm-hmm. sure I know I'll even say it as a guy who does this kind of thing a lot. I always judge people. I judge mm-hmm. rich people who die on Mount Everest. I go, mm-hmm. what were you doing up there? And you were just, you were climbing Mount Everest. So you could come back and tell your friends you climbed Mount Everest. And, uh, I, and when they die, I go, oh, good for you, you know? So you're one of those people then. I'm one of those dead. Yeah. Uh, I'll just say this was a little different just because I know what kind of people do this thing. And there, mm-hmm. there, I, there probably have been a, a few people who are just there to notch it off and go home and tell people what they did. But, you know, these are genuine. A, they're genuinely interested people. They're people who seen the world and now mm-hmm. want to see what's under the world. Um, and they're all, again, it's like they knew what they were getting into. They chose to mm-hmm. risk their lives yeah. doing this. And, you know, when, when people would say, why are we you know, doing all this search and rescue to help a bunch of billionaires? It's like, all right, how much, how poor do you have to be that we search and rescue for? You know, we do, I read these stories all the time. Some hiker gets lost in the, in the national park, and we mm-hmm. we send out the Marines and the Air Force to help them, and it's always expensive, and it's a great thing. And we do it for a dog, a dog who gets his hanging off a bridge or something. Mm-hmm. We'll shut down the city to save a dog. It's we should be really happy about that. That this is what we do. For other people, it doesn't make financial sense or sense of, you know, resources. But, you know, we love our fellow creatures and every life is valuable. Some people, I didn't see this, but uh, there's a Simpsons episode that kind of foreshadowed this or something years ago. Can you tell us about that? Well, you know, the fans are the ones who always have to tell us. Yeah. You know, we make the shows and we move on. I'm the same way. I have no memory of some of these things, you know. Uh, 
But I guess uh, there was a, a a vehicle, you know, like the one you're in or whatever that got trapped. And, and it was funny. Uh, I worked on that episode. Uh-huh. And then I'm like anyone else. I look on Twitter and I see the clip. I go, Jesus Christ, it looked just like our sub. They got yeah. in the same kind of trouble. And yeah, so it happened. You know, these things happen because we do a lot of research on Simpsons and our art department works hard to get it right and get the look of what a modern sub looks like. So you're saying that you guys in the Simpsons are not witches. That's what you're trying to say. We are not. I I mean, if that's what you're saying, I mean, I guess, I mean, whatever. (laughs) but you've gotten, I mean, you predicted Trump. I mean, there's a lot of things that you guys, you know, I read once the most predictive show, the show that predicted the future more than anything else was the Jetsons. And they had a list of 30 inventions wow. and technological leaps that the Jetsons predicted. Yeah. And I don't think it was a bunch of PhDs <laughs> writing. <laughs> That's true. And I think what happens is there's reverse engineering. They do those things on those shows, and then people are influenced by the things on those shows, like with Star Trek, like the communicator. Yeah, it'd be great to have a phone like the thing on Star Trek. So it's not so much they're predicting it. I think the people who come later are influenced by what they saw too. You know? There's that. Yeah, that for sure. The other thing is a lot of comedy is just taking what's real and going one step beyond. Mm-hmm. And that's a joke at the time. And then sooner or later, society goes that way. And the example I use is the very first commercial parody on the very first Saturday Night mm-hmm. Live was for a three-bladed razor. That's right. I remember that. It just invented the two-bladed razor. And this is so dumb. What about three blades? And now Now there's five. I don't know. There are seven. Yeah, five for sure. You know, it's funny. I just went, I just did a deep dive on the first season of Saturday Night Live. It's on Peacock right now. And I just went, Uh I just watched every episode again, you know, and there was so much I had forgotten uh, because you only remember some of the highlights of it. You know, the show was pretty spotty, but the musical guests were amazing during that first year, you know, and, you know, this is kind of a side issue here and everything, but it was, it was interesting to, you know, knowing, cause you know, I was, a, I was very influenced by Saturday Night Live. I'm a teenager at the time and just seeing how, seeing people pop for the first time and, and, and us knowing now what was going to happen to them was really fascinating. Yeah. I remember they re-ran, oh, I guess when George Carlin died, mm. they re-ran the first episode because he was He's the, the host. host yeah. And you're watching the show going, everyone on the show is dead. And it, it wasn't that long ago, but it was just full of dead people. You know, Gilda Radner and Andy Kaufman yeah. and Jim Henson. Jim Belushi, I, yeah. It was super shocking. And, but Again, you know, it's just a coincidence. If they weren't all dead, we wouldn't have known it. Leave it to Mike to make it a bright, <laughs> bright <laughs> look. Uh, well, I have you here. Let's. Uh, if you have any favorite Simpson stories or anything you want to for our Simpson fans out there, now they got Mike Reese on the pot. I'm sure I do. I, I, I just told one the other day that uh, I hadn't thought about in a long time, which was, if I, if I can use this kind of language. Of course, podcast, say whatever you want. Yeah. All right. We, we had a scene where, uh, oh, you know what? It was, it was such an innocent thing, too. We were just doing this old schoolyard rhyme where it says, 
behind the refrigerator, there was a piece of glass. Susie sat upon it and it went right up her ass. So we're doing that. So it's not even our joke. It's schoolyard joke. And we put that in the script and the censor said, you cannot say <laughs> in the end. Well, yes. No, you can't say, you can't say up her right. ass. That was it. I should have told this story, but it went right up her ass. They said, you cannot say up her ass. And we go, all right, we understand. They said, please change it to in her oh ass. Oh my God. Yeah. So we go, okay. If I you guess that's that. It's so much worse. But so we changed it to in her ass. So the next week we had another ass joke to do and we changed it. So we said, blah, blah, blah. And uh, he, he should shove it right in his ass. And we get, the, <laughs> we get the note from the censor. Please change in his ass to up his no ass. Way. Yeah. And that was it. And I remember we actually talked about this at the PJs, which was the word ass had just become permitted. Right. Fox had just decided you can say ass. Yeah. You can only say it one time a week. Yeah. And it was like, what a gift, you know, a free joke. <laughs> ass is always funny. And then there was one episode where we had two asses, two an ass joke in act one, an ass joke in act three. And we could not decide which one we were going to do. Such a dilemma. Such a writer, writing room dilemma. Where are you going to cut the ass joke? So we, we put it to a vote. And the vote was a tie. You know, this is, this is how democracy works. <laughs> so finally we said, we'll use Act One Ass this week. Mm-hmm. And then when the show reruns in the summer, we'll do the other ass. You know, very three ass. Solomonic decision. Yeah. About six months later, Fox comes out with a show with Bobcat Goldthwait called Bob's Big Ass Show. It was a game show. The name Ass was All on screen 30 minutes a week. Right. And he had to say it 10 times a week. So that's the history of Ass and TV. And I remember telling you this story at the PJs. And you said, we pretty well burned the word ass out. <laughs> yeah. In fact, on the pilot of the Bernie Mac show, which I did a couple years later, I had Big Ass Donut. Not only did Bernie say it like three or four times, and then I actually had it written on the screen just to burn in blazing. <laughs> it's funny how TV changes like that. The, you know, my brother, of course, wrote on The Simpsons, you know, for a while with you guys. And uh, I remember there was a story once of um, Elon Musk coming by. Because <laughs> yeah. a lot of you guys had, I guess, some of the early Teslas or whatever. And, uh, I think Mark kind of told them off or something. I'm not sure. Were you in that room when that happened? I didn't didn't hear the details of it. He told me that, uh, you know, he had a Tesla and everything went wrong with it, you know? Oh, no, I didn't know that. And he was trying to uh, (laughs) tell that to Elon Musk, how horrible his car was when everybody else was kind of kissing his ass. It was just, I just found that kind of funny. The typical. I loved your brother. I mean, I loved your brother. He was literally my favorite guy yeah. at the show. He was so nice to my wife who would come pick me up at the show. Mm-hmm. But the, we spent a lot of quality time together because yeah, I... Yeah, he, lo- he Mark, Mark really loved you. He loved you a lot, yeah. I used to fly in from New York. I live in New York. I'd fly in for The Simpsons and I would leave very late because I had a 3,000-mile commute. 
but he also had like a 200 mile yeah, commute. He lived way out yeah. by Palm Springs. So both of us would stay really late after work. And we always had this kind of late night quality time together. So I, I, I really got a kick out of him, but he was pretty fearless. I remember a great thing on Twitter where Steve Martin was doing one panel cartoons and they weren't great. And <laughs> they just were never that That's good. Hilarious. And he put them up and they get, they'd always get 10,000 sure. likes and, and your brother would always write people just like these because you're Steve Martin. Oh my God. It's so rough. <laughs> yeah. Mark was not afraid to call people out. He was, he yeah. always kept it 100%, maybe 200% real. Uh, <laughs> um, well, Mike, I appreciate you stopping by. Uh, you know, like I said, this uh, event is big tragedy, of course, for all the people involved and everything. It's just one of these things that happened. But it was, it was great to get your perspective on it and to hear uh, some of the back background of it. Yeah. There's a cliche, but it has meaning. I mean, cliches stick around because sometimes yeah. they make sense. And these guys died doing what they mm. loved. And if it had been me, could have been me on there. And I would have felt the same way. Oh, well, this is what I, I knew this might happen. Yeah. So it's been shocking and all, and uh, but it hasn't broken my heart because it just, mm. this, this, was, this was part of the package. Does Denise still want to do this? Nah, no, I don't think so. Yeah, she's done now. There's no way to do it. They were the only company doing it, and uh, the head of the company is gone. So I think that's the end, which I feel bad for because I knew everyone at the company, Mm -hmm. everyone at the strip mall garage. It was a beautiful setup. It looked like something a Bond villain would have because it's this super secret lab right next to a Quiznos. Wow, that's so... That's so perfect in so many ironic, tragic ways. So, you know, so perfect. Uh, Mike Reese, everybody. Uh, thanks for being on Black of the Air, Mike. It's really great seeing you. Pleasure. Love seeing you, buddy. 